Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today we're uncovering a film which likely needs no introduction, the 1981 action-adventure directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Lawrence Kasdan, created by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, and starring Harrison Ford. I am, of course, talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And today we are very excited. We're joined by two super special guests, two professional Egyptologists and hosts of the Afterlives podcast. We're joined by Kara Cooney and Jordan Gelzinski. So Kara, Jordan, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We're really happy to be talking with you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Super exciting. Yes. So we usually start with our guests. So we'll start with you two. And our first question is always, do you dig this movie? And what is your kind of relation to Indiana Jones? Well, I'm going to start because I'm older. I grew up with this movie. This movie, you know, I think I'm older than anybody here. I was born in 1972 when, you know, VHSs hadn't been like invented yet. And I remember when we got the first VHS player in my house and we would tape things off of TV with commercials in it and everything mm-hmm. and we would play it again and again. And this was one of those movies for us. So Raiders is a movie that I have lines memorized too. I use in everyday conversation. Jordan was funny and she's like, just in case you don't remember, she sent me a synopsis of the plot. And I was like, oh, look at that plot, huh? <laughs> wow. Okay. Just, I, that was the, the sound of, uh, of thud thuds as Jordan got thrown under the bus. Um, yeah, thanks, Kara. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. <laughs> she's always trying to prep me, which is not a stupid thing to do. And um, so, and I love this movie, but when you see something as a child, it's like listening to a song that's all about sex and then you're 27 and you go, oh my God, that song's all about sex. Mm-hmm. So it, taken me a while to revisit this and take my childhood out of it. So that's where I'm coming from. I'm going to say it's complicated. And I think for the same reasons as Kara, I grew up watching all these movies. I can't tell you how many times I've seen all the Indiana Jones movies. My parents really like them. But I think growing up wanting to be an archaeologist and Egyptologist, the movie I related more to perhaps rather than Kara with Raiders was more The Mummy. So Raiders always felt a little older. And then I think it wasn't until I, when I didn't, I guess, see myself in Indiana Jones, he's a male, all these things, where at least in The Mummy, I saw myself kind of in Evie being the clumsy librarian and all this kind of stuff. Um, You guys, Jordan just called me old. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I'll set a breakout room on the site so you you can hash it out. And (laughs) I mean, I think we figured out like last weekend that you could be my mom. Like, oh, totally. And you have just made me like your parents. So that's all good. <laughs> Tell them I said hi. <laughs> um, One of my students accused me of being like a millennial, which would for them meant old. When I, I, I used the word spoopy in lecture one day, and they're like, that's the most millennial shit I've ever heard. <laughs> By the way, are we allowed to curse on this? Yes. Oh, yes. Go ahead. Please. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just, just good to know. <laughs> Yeah, I had it on my paper, like, ask if we can curse. <laughs> I want to actually pivot because Christy, I think you have a very similar reaction. And also, Christy, this is your first, not to put you on the spot or anything. Yep. Last night was the first time I watched this film. Wow. Um, oh my uh, God. Very similar to Jordan. I grew up with Mummy, which I absolutely love, but I also grew up with Tomb Raider like I remember going to drive through movie with my like middle school girls soccer team and watching that and being like well she's badass and I like her so I I have to say like at the end it's like I did not dig this movie because 
there's so much nostalgia to it that other people have that like I I went into it like with the mummy and we talked about Lost City not too long ago where I feel like better versions of this action adventure archaeology films like I that's what I grew up on or got to see recently that this one was just it ends up falling flat but I can recognize all the memes and like all the line like it's it's not as if I wasn't aware of this movie I just never had sat down and watched it mm-hmm. and I think like the other part is I've been to Disneyland once in California and my mom was super upset because my brother and I were too short to go on the brand new Indiana Jones movie or ride. And she had to watch us ride Dumbo like five times while everyone else went on that. And so like there's like a touch. Yeah, it was great. So there's a touch of bitterness about the movie in my family for some reason. <laughs> for some reason, I have stark, strong memories of the Wind and the Willows ride always freaking me out. But um... You go to hell in that one. You actually get to go to hell. You die, you get hit by a train, and you go to hell. What? Yes, you remember that from Wild Toad Adventure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, a train comes out, or a car, I don't know. You die, and then you actually go into... <laughs> it's the best ride. It's really oh awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Or you just ruined everyone's childhood. (laughs) So yeah, Christy coming in with what we in the business call fighting words. And I'm going to pivot to Eli and then. So I, I did grow up with this movie because my mom loved this movie. She saw it in theaters. She grew up in Southern California. She went to see all the big movies coming out and she introduced me to a lot of the old classics like she sat me down made me watch star wars when i was young and so she was like this movie you're gonna watch indiana jones and i think she like saw something she's like this this girl is crazy and wants to dig holes in the yard so (laughs) okay archaeology let's try that and here's where we ended up so i definitely have huge nostalgic feelings for this movie and i think weirdly enough it never bothered me that I didn't see myself as a woman in Indiana Jones. It was just like, oh, well, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, it never bothered me that I, that I had this male figure that I was like, well, I'm, I'm obviously going to do that with, you know, running around the ship and punching Nazis and all of <laughs> etc. But I, I do remember, and Christy was there for this, uh, on the first excavation that Christy and I worked together on um, in Gajavecchio, our Sicily, our professor <laughs> said, they're digging in the wrong place. And it just brought up this like <laughs> absolute joy of like physically actually doing the thing and hearing someone else say that and bring in that story. And it was, it has meant so much to me. <laughs> So I think it's delightful, and I absolutely recognize um, watching it again last night just some cringe moments that I absolutely did not notice as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I took like in undergrad, I took in a class on Orientalism, and he showed so many clips from this movie, and then I was like, oh, like bobs but off, you know, like oh okay, yeah. Like this movie, as much as we we talked a lot about nostalgia, sort of for for the five of us, because in like 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 you, I grew up watching. I have very clear memories of being on long family car trips, and we would do this thing where like we had this minivan, we could flip the middle seat around, and we set up like a little mini TV out of VCR yep. player in the car, and like me and my siblings like squished like three in the back, you know, watching Raiders sort of in the car. Like that might have been the first time I saw this movie. 
And but the like we like nostalgia, but on like how much of our fond memories, Christie aside, are <laughs> rooted in nostalgia. But this movie itself is actually like born out of nostalgia, right? Because it's it's sort of modeling itself after the like adventure serials of the thirties and forties that George Lucas and, and Spielberg kind of grew up on. And so it has like, even, even in 1981, it was kind of like inherently nostalgic, but the sort of flip side is that sort of, and we, we all have been alluding to that kind of uncritical and maybe a little bit retrograde attitude towards archeology, span colonialism, artifacts and what, you know, or where they do and do not belong, things like that. But it's super fitting to look at all the inappropriate stuff and think of, you know, professors like Gary Urton and it's brought up exactly in, and if you don't know who Gary Urton is, he's a known sexual harasser and maybe worse at, at Harvard and lots, lots of things have been written about him. But to see that this actually happened with the underage daughter of one of his colleagues and that's Miriam and what mm -hmm. all of that means. And as a child, you don't get that. And then when you're in the profession and these things are happening around you, it, we can look at this and have some modernist exceptionalism and feel like we're past it all, but we're really not. And so <laughs> I think looking at this movie from a critical lens of what academic and museum society is all about, it's, it's no bad thing to, yeah. to kind of take it in. In yeah. early drafts, it was even worse. Like, cause there was the bit with the, the student where she's got like the, I love you on her, on her eyes. Nope. But in, in early drafts, like, so in the scene where, Marcus goes to Indiana Jones's house after they meet with like the CIA guys or whatever. In the original draft, there was like a student or or he had like a mistress or somebody over, which is why like in that scene, when they go to toast, there's an already open bottle of champagne right there on the table. And it's like a holdover from like, and like why Indy's in like a dress robe. <laughs> I didn't know that. You've mm -hmm. blown my mind. And ew. Mm -hmm. So ew. Yeah. Very but like also this like, goes towards the not accurate archaeologist trope because like that doesn't happen yes <laughs> yes it does. no one's like dig sex no, happens like, people don't talk about it or they do they do talk about it well but, yes know. but like not that like we're all a bunch of harrison fords walking around well some self-style that way <laughs> a lot of directors like to think they're a bunch of harrison fords yeah. walking around yeah. i have always really like aligned indiana jones with james bond in that way in that he's this like very hyper masculine but like so much so that it seems almost comical that it's unrealistic mm -hmm. at, at that level you, it's actually like when steven the conception for this movie was Basically, Star Wars, it was opening weekend and George Lucas does this thing where when his movies come out, he like goes on vacation because he doesn't want to be around to like get the and he just waits for the box office returns. And so he went to Hawaii with Steven Spielberg and they're like hanging out at the beach. And he asked Steven Spielberg, like, what are you what are you thinking on next? And Steven Spielberg says, I always wanted to do James Bond. And George Lucas says, I'll do you one better. I've got this idea. His name is Indiana Smith. And then he pitches Raiders. And his name was originally Indiana Smith. But Steven Spielberg was like, no, I hate that. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of, it, it, but yeah, Eli, like totally right. Like it's almost like it's such a uber, like the masculinity read on this whole film is like, it's so over the top that it almost becomes like a parody of itself. And you could like, I think you could do like an ironic reading of, you know, the, the macho, machoism of Indiana Jones. With everyone, with the CIA, with the Nazis, with with uh, the academics, museum people, it's it's great. With the Egyptian, it's mm -hmm. it's all there. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the Orientalizing of the of Salah that's that's something we can discuss too. But he he does take on a different role. Yeah. Yes. 
And also, originally, the original casting for Sala, before it was John Reese davis the six-foot-three, like, Welshman or whatever, was originally going to be Danny DeVito, because they wanted, like, a more, like, almost like the Benny from The Mummy, like, something more in that dimension of, like, kind of like a, like a cringy, like, what? goofy comic relief type. And then... That's even more Orientalist. Than- yes. <laughs> yes. That uh, freaks me out, Colin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why? I, I will say that, like... Our introduction to is it Miriam? Because my subtitles kept saying Marion. Marion. It is Marion. Okay. Okay. Our introduction to her is in Nepal and she's running her own bar and she's showing that she belongs to that space by out drinking the men. And like to me, that was something that rang very true about my experience in archaeology of this being it's a fraternity in a lot of ways. (laughs) And like you know, archaeologists, you go to conferences and stuff. That's what you hear about them. It's like they're party animals and it's so true, you know, so have true. questionable relationships with grad students. And but like that moment of her knowing the way she needs to be belong is by out drinking the men around her. It's like, yeah, I've I've experienced that on a lot of sites um, where you have to prove your masculinity mm-hmm. to belong, even though predominantly so many women especially at those lower as workers or maybe trench leaders, all those lower positions are filled mostly by women. And then you just have like the director who's a male or something like that. And so that moment spoke to me. You bring up this great point of archaeologists needing to be cool and, and at home in foreign places. So she's in Nepal. When she gets to Egypt, she puts on Egyptian dress. They're all, they're, they're like, it's dates, you eat them and everything's all, and we do this, don't we? We go to the the places, the weird places at the ends of the earth. And we're like, oh yeah, this is just normal. Though we really dig that. And we love that unusual experience. There is so much of that in this movie that, that speaks to me and my love of travel and different things and then immersing myself in those spaces. I was just going to say, I feel snobby as an archaeologist, admittedly, because like when I travel somewhere, it's like I live and work there for weeks at a time. And it's like I see cruise ships come on and just spurt a bunch of people out and then they get back on a few hours later. It's like that is not how you travel. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I'm not a tourist. I know better. Yeah, (laughs) I know things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there is something on that, like very having that exclusive access somehow and that information and I wonder if we're all just sort of I don't know a little bit dramatic and we want to we want to get into those behind the scenes places I certainly do I think that definitely was part of my early like interest in doing archaeology it's like ooh, not a lot of people do this or and you yeah. literally you, you get to go be you know on the other side of the fence right like you get to be in you know one of the cooler things I am actually by full confession I am not an archaeologist I am a literary studies people but having sort of gone abroad where they take you and like you get to go in whatever it is the parthenon like nobody gets to go in here you get to go underneath the temple of nike or or something like that um and there is like an exclusivity to the the craft which in both the kind of travel and and sort of ingratiating yourself and whatever it is you're working that you know and that's and like just physically getting to go into spaces that people don't go like this exclusivity that like i mean exclusiveness is appealing right it's like creates an in club Everybody's nodding, well, listeners. Yes, um. yes. <laughs> well, and I think, too, um, the allure of, of the movie, and mm-hmm. I think of archaeology when we're younger, is, like, finding mysteries, finding something new that's been, like, lost for thousands of years, and it has this, you know, allure to it. 
um, and in the movie, right, we're looking for this lost ark and mm -hmm. taking us on this journey. So, you know, in most cases, when you're actually on an archaeological dig, you don't find anything but, you know, potsherds or something, or you find something cool, like the very last day of the dig, mm -hmm. as it always goes, you know, always. you're not finding lost arcs or gold <laughs> or anything. And but... it's so true, if you find something awesome, the authorities are going to come in and they're going to take that shit away. You mm -hmm. don't get to study it and look at it. The more precious and special it is, faster it goes into a museum, the more famous something is. I always say there's nothing more understudied than until recently. Tutankhamun's treasures because they're so famous that they're always under glass and they're never under microscope and people don't know anything about them. Yeah. This actually is um, because they say something to the effect of like when they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, they're like, this is why we got into archaeology, like this idea, this is the dream. And so I guess like the question that I'm kind of formulating is that this movie's, and we all talked about this movie is, is a landmark sort of watershed for people being interested in archaeology and, and Egyptology and fields like that. And I'm sort of the question I'm trying to kind of pose is, is like the relationship, like our modern popular culture's relationship to these kinds of academic fields, how much of it is, is, is Indiana Jones like a crystallization of our attitudes or is it the root cause is I guess is what I'm kind of getting at. Everybody's looking thoughtful and pensive. No, we all, we've all, you know, since the discovery of, well, we, before Tutankhamun, you had the discovery of the, the great death pits of Ur. And before that, you had the, I mean, the discoveries have been pretty fast and frantic since colonialism has gone into spaces and taken things and then brought them back to their world fairs and their great museums. I think the, the cool thing here is like finding something that's mythical. Mm hmm in this case, the Ark of the Covenant and the next, uh, the third movie, the the Holy Grail. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that one person would find both of these yeah. things. That people do work <laughs> on Grail lore. I mean, that kind of, it's like putting your D&D nerdiness together with actually finding something. But but it's it's cool that, you know, when somebody goes into a museum and we see the newbies that we're making fun of, you know, the people from the cruise ship, they go into a museum, they look at something, they walk away and you're like, you didn't even look at it. You mm -hmm. didn't look at the object. You're not doing analysis of the thing. And when you actually, it, that's one thing I like about the movie is, you know, you see Indiana Jones, we'll make fun of him, fine. But, you know, he's, he's looking at things with a detailed eye that is underneath the piece or over to the side or someplace that, that the normal person wouldn't look. And... It's what we all do. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I like I would, that view. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, but to me, I guess I view him a little bit more with a different intention. It seems very much like his personal, like, collecting. He's looking at it to steal it. You are right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, And it's like gold and my money and I found it. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, oh, look at this object and what, like, knowledge it will contribute to the field and I'm going to bring it to this museum so everyone can look at it and learn about it. It's And there's a there's a part at the very beginning after the the very iconic opening scene in, in Peru with where, where Belloc takes the idol from him and then you know, he steals the idol and then Belloc steals it from him. And then he's talking to Marcus and then he's like, I had it, I was this close. And he's like, oh, I got these other pieces. And Marcus says, well, of course, we'll buy it from you. No questions asked, which was like, Ooh. oh, yeah, you know? <laughs> I know it's the 30s, but... <laughs> like that still goes down antiquities and modern art these are places mm -hmm. to launder large amounts of cash for states to pay each other huge amounts of of money in the in the plain light of day so uh, one mm -hmm. could argue it's even gotten worse yeah and, and every every it seems like every couple of years so there's a story of you know the met will return X thing to wherever it, you know because it's, it's a sort of illegal providence or i mean also places like christie's and sotheby's are huge vectors 
again, everybody's nodding. I um, hate that I'm named. I have I share a name with Christine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. mm. I will say that that to me was one of the maybe what turned me off. It was the most unrelatable aspect of Indiana Jones of like the intentionality of going to places to find a particular object. Yes. That is not my experience at all. My experience is like I wrote a prospectus thinking like we might find this and therefore this is what I might argue and then mm-hmm. proceeding to find nothing along those lines and completely changing, you know, what I was looking for. Um, but like that to me is what is exciting is like you don't know what you're actually going to find. Howard, yeah. Carter, knew, though. Howard Carter knew what he was going to find. He knew which kings were missing. He knew what their names were. He knew what locations to look in. And he had all kinds of, he dug here, he dug clues. there. He had he clues. Said, okay, we're going to go here. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he kind of knew. And sometimes he knew. Here's actually a, a question for, for the archaeologist, as, is, which is actually just kind of like, you know, because normally, as I understand it, as sort of an outsider to the field is that, you know, you, you know sort of where sites are and then you, you sort of see what's there and what's on the cover. But like, how often do you get a case like King Tut's tomb or or Troy or something like that, where somebody sets out, you know, or my senior somebody sets out where it's like, I'm going to find the lost city of, you know, whatever it is. Because I mean, that's, it feels to me like a thing from the turn of the century. Yeah, I mean, you always get those recent news things where they're like, found Cleopatra's tomb or Alexander's tomb, or mm-hmm. they're looking for another pharaoh and they, you know, use all this hype and it turns out to be nothing or dates to that time period. So maybe it could be. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a one in a million type event i would say um but that's what everyone knows about is those events not and i feel like the kind of people who are really into that kind of stuff are in effect kind of conspiracy theorists i have a very clear memory of being at like a party or something and some guy who was like the friend of a friend who was went on this like 20 minute rant about like his theory of where alexander the great's tomb was and i was like all right (laughs) cool i guess well i really i like um belloc at one point when they're in egypt i think it's belloc he says archaeology is not an exact science (laughs) and i have like two very different feelings about that because like sure i think what what we have all said is like you know you can create a sort of research plan and go dig at a site and it be nothing like what you thought. And you sort of, you know, we always have to work with the data that we have. And so, you know, extrapolating from the stories that we make up. However, you know, Schliemann decided to, you know, call the different places of Troy. It's like, we can only ever really work with what we have. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of that, it's like, well, Schliemann did find Troy and like we did find Tutankhamun's tomb and like we there are these places out there and so it's like is is archaeology an exact science you guys I'm, I'm okay with this way of Indiana Jones and um, his sidekick the museum dude whose name I forget but they you know they go in to get things to bring to the museum in a 1920s 30s 40s world that is on point Sure. That is what people did. That's why they invested in it. That's why they would spend their winters there and and try to get things to bring back to the Met, to bring back to the British Museum, to sell, to make money. This is part of that game. And to put it into in, into that lens, I think is, I mean, it's correct. It's it's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it's wrong. We, we, we talked about this <laughs> when, when we were talking about the mummy, which is the mummy similarly can kind of have its cake and eat it too, where you get this kind of treasure huntery thing but it's also like kind of it works because it's set in the 20s or something yeah, like and that. i view the mummy is i find much more satirical mm-hmm. so it it's poking a lot more fun not like the Ryder haggard novels and stuff where 
Indiana Jones, I don't read as that satirical at times. Well, when he a little says bit, the but... museum will buy it as usual, I mean, don't you think that's kind of, kind of, I mean, it's, it's totally a dig at the way these things are done. You know, I'm just gonna, I mean, I'm gonna defend, we're not gonna defend the second movie because no one can, but I think <laughs> there's a lot more about this movie that's actually seen the, the crap that goes on in academia, the crap that goes on in the museum world. And that is actually being, it's, it's being more cleverly, um, uh, cynical about it than than you might expect. Did you all see the story? Uh, like my neighbor shared this with me today because she knows I do archaeology. That they found a Roman bust at a Goodwill there. in Austin. You were there. I was there. <laughs> yeah, no, they brought it into the department. We had like all the faculty, and we like sat down with everybody, and we're like, "What do we think this is? And why do we think it's this?" And yeah, it's been basically in the works for like the past two or three years because of covid but yeah it's back us up i, I need a little because <laughs> when, when was this where was i <laughs> i don't know colin i don't know where you were so it was um oh gosh it must have been 2018 i guess um someone affiliated with the art history department found in a goodwill in austin texas a marble bust and said that looks suspiciously real and so bought it for $34.99 it was so heavy she couldn't carry it like to her car she like had some guy goodwill like help her carry it and so that's the picture that's been going around is this Roman bus like seat belted into a front seat (laughs) (laughs) and they they brought it to um, we were all in the art uh what's the building now i can't remember it colin i've been gone so long like i've been gone I know. longer <laughs> been longer i don't know um but yeah we were all a lot of they put out a call it was like hey we're gonna talk about this we don't know if it's real we're gonna you know have a discussion and so rabin taylor and um penelope davies and some other people were there and we just sort of talked through like our opinions on what in the world we think this is and they uh, did a lot of research and they found that it was probably looted by, I think, a World War II soldier stationed somewhere in Germany um, who took it from maybe a bombed out like palace that was sort of made to look like a Roman Pompeian building or something like that. And it's going to be returned there in a year. So it's going to be on display at the museum in San Antonio, I think, for about a year. And then 2023, it's going back. Alright. So it's a really yeah, like, cool story. One family member was like, Yeah, just get rid of that. Take it to Goodwill. Like <laughs> Right? <laughs> like we don't want it. That giant paperweight. Yeah, you two can now be an Indiana Jones by going to your local Goodwill and seeing what you find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think that's like such a great story of like making a lot of the right decisions of like, oh wow, this looks suspiciously real and let's you know talk with my colleagues and like let's do a lot of research and actually like repatriating something that was looted i think it's it's such a great story because it's been i think going around and a lot of people love that image i think it's so cool that Roman mm-hmm. bust <laughs> seat belted in that car yeah can I, can I jump back to Raiders and ask a question that I've always wondered about? Yep. Was anyone else intrigued by the fact that the, that the French archaeologist was Jewish and that 
he then led the ritual and that the Nazis were all about, I mean, the underbelly of that kind of stuff was like, that was pretty crazy. And as a kid, I didn't, I mean, I, I knew that the Nazis were anti-Jewish and, mm-hmm. you know, this Jewish ritual, the, the guy whose face will be melted off says <laughs> the Nazi guy. But so, you know, there's some distaste there for it, but it's, it's super interesting that you, that, that there's cleverness enough that the archeologist is like trying to walk two or three different identities with his code shifting of mm-hmm. how he fits into, as a mercenary, which is very archeological too. How many mercenaries mm-hmm. like, or, or spies or CIA type people mm-hmm. like, dip in these in these realms and that was really interesting to me too well the but the best part about the the ark being the thing everyone's coveting is like hitler wants the ark but the ark is you know like the symbol of judaism but that's he doesn't you know hates jewish people yeah. but then he has to turn to the like that's the most powerful object he can turn to and then it you know is also the destruction then of all the evil nazis so it's very you know very apropos there i do love that absolutely I was just going to say that, like, I've been talking about Rwandan genocide with my students for the last few weeks. So, uh, but with that idea is that a lot of, you know, the things, the harm done to people is because of the power you fear they possess. And so that's not too surprising, actually, that Hitler ultimately is, you know, speaking to fear of what Jewish people possess, especially with this powerful object, but he also wants to possess it for himself. Like, that's really, yeah, that's intriguing. So I have like so many thoughts about this. And like one is like, like you could, I think just again, like do a whole reading of this movie as like a Jewish revenge fantasy, right? It's, it's, it's all, it's it's literally where Nazis are destroyed by like the most sacred artifact. Uh, And also, you know, it's a thing, one of those things that like, I didn't really realize as a kid, like as a kid, I was thinking like, yeah, Egypt, it's all Egypt, but I didn't realize that there was like a specifically, um, it was like, they're actually looking for, for a uh, Jewish artifact that was looted from Jerusalem and then brought to Egypt, um, which I also have questions about that. Mm. But yeah, I think like, you know, and it seems very on brand for Spielberg. It's like, I just want to like destroy Nazis with, with Jewish artifacts. Um, <laughs> and I think he, I think he's pretty upfront about that. He's like, yeah, that's kind of what I was my vibe. It's very cathartic. Yes. 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 Um, You're like, yes. Nazis. I was impressed with all of the ways he managed to show excruciating death, but in like a multitude of ways of melting, exploding, and like a combination mm-hmm. of the two. Like when I was a kid, my parents didn't let me watch that scene. That was the part where I had to like leave and go into the other room to like, <laughs> so I didn't see the guy's face get melted off until I was like 20. <laughs> why, why do you have to close your eyes? And how does he know that? And how stupid is that part? Just close your eyes, Marion. Don't mm-hmm. look at it no matter what happens. And then they get to he read his Bible. They didn't look at the face of God. I mean, come on. That's stupid. He read his Bible. You know, you can't look at it, can't touch it. He knows. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't touch, there's actually, I, I learned in the Bible, there's a story about the Ark where like they're moving the Ark and some guy like it's wobbling and some guy goes to steady it and he just dies on the spot for touching he, it. Actually, so I'm teaching a class on Jerusalem right now and we just read that scene. It's David mm-hmm. trying to bring the Ark into the city and he tries it once. I think his name's like Hosea or something, touches it and he like melts and dies. And then they're like, oh, okay, like bring it back. Like go put it in its tent again. Mm-hmm. And then they try to bring it back like, the second time. Then God's like, okay, you can bring it back now. Like now it's finally okay. Wow. I have a thought, but I actually just want to bring it back to, to Kara's sort of original question about Belloc. And like Belloc is kind of one of the more interesting characters. Cause like, you're right. Like he's, he is this interesting kind of 
the dark, you know, he says something to Indiana Jones at one point where he's like, you know, you're two steps away from becoming me. He's this mercenary. I mean, presumably he's a traitor in more than one sense where he's like working for the Nazis, despite being French and also Jewish. Um, you know, he's also a traitor to the spirit of archaeology, at least as sort of if Jones embodies it, which as we've talked about is, you know, flawed in its own ways. But yeah, Belloc is kind of this, I don't know, he, he I guess he's, he's right. He, in, a, in just a just sort of standard hero's journey kind of screenplay 101 like right he's the shadow or the inversion of, of indiana jones and whereas indiana jones is rugged and every man belloc is also genteel and refined right he's he's you know yeah, he's they never mentioned that he has a phd one wonders mm-hmm. ah. <laughs> i had another sort of like lighter question on this subject which is we, we, there's i think talking Monitor about the importance of nemeses in your own sort of personal and professional life, which is, do you have any bellocks? Like, who is your nemesis? Um, I can't name them on this podcast. I, I was like, Colin, what kind of question is that? This is an important. I think nemeses are important. Everyone has them. You yes. have to go bleep, yes. bleep, bleep. Yes. yes. If you say anything that you want bleeped out, I can do that after the fact. So that's fine. I mean, yeah. When when you um, work in the university uh, world, the academic world, and you're working with discoveries and publication and students, and there's so much competition, especially as higher education is carpet bombed from the inside out. There's there's no question that you're going to have you're going to create or make or have enemies, whether you want them or not. Um, and I would just encourage everyone, like Indiana Jones does, just use them to to spur you on. That's a good yeah. yeah. <laughs> If you don't have enemies, you're not doing it right. Fair. There you mm-hmm. go. When those enemies are Nazi sympathizers, then you're probably doing it right. That's what I always tell Kara. I was just gonna say, I think of it like my my relationship with my little brother, where it's like, I love you, but like competition is happening and it's on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's like healthy competition, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then I think sometimes it it veers into like you know, I we, I feel like UCLA has a really good atmosphere amongst its grad students, but I've heard. Terrible, terrible stories from other grad programs mm-hmm. about like you know sabotage and people like purposely trying to like knock other people down hide and books, steal things stuff like take that. their ideas hide books like all those kind of stuff which is just terrible we just had an episode about the emperor's club which is a movie about a sort of like prep school for for roman historians and we talked about this a lot yeah that that sort of inherent the competitive inherently competitive nature of that some academics foster which is bad for the soul I feel like that has so much to do with this like ego of like yeah. I'm the Indiana Jones, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're... why does he need all these chicks? Mm-hmm. Why? What right? is he lacking in himself? So much right? I think the answer is gets into the third movie, and that's his father's love. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> True. He didn't get hugged to... enough. <laughs> So I need to watch two more movies to fully understand the psyche of Indiana Jones, which I've seen the opening of the third one to see how like we learned that he hates snakes, which I appreciate mm-hmm. Yeah, that he hammed it up for hating snakes. I'm like, I can tell that man just cannot with snakes. The snake scene, it's fascinating if you go and you watch all the behind the scenes footage, because originally like the, the initial problem was there just weren't enough snakes. Like they had 2000 snakes or something like that. And Spielberg, like when I pan out, you can see spots oh, that don't have snakes. snakes on them. Yeah, it's like more snakes. And he sent somebody had to like go out and did like a midnight run. They were filming in, in England and somebody like like went and they found more snakes in some place in Denmark and they brought in. So they're, the numbers vary, but there's something like six or 7,000 snakes that they used. That's too many snakes. And the worst... Poor animals. And, and, 5,099 
too many snakes. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, Karen Allen, the, who plays Marion, she had it the worst because because she she talks about like in interviews where she's like, well, like Harrison Ford got to wear like he's wearing like boots and and trousers, and I'm in like the dress and I'm barefoot, and the, the snakes, part, yeah. yeah, and the snakes are all right there. I really but, we have to talk about that scene too because the the walls that are decorating this temple space are just so wrong. They're egregiously wrong, and it just makes me crazy. Why can't you hire a consultant? Why can't you hire the right consultant to get this right? Because there's tomb scenes or temple. I mean, is it, where are they, and why is it underground? It's it makes no sense. The mummies are cool. I have a great story about this, like well of souls or whatever. So when you go to actually, when I went to Tanis for the first time, real Tanis in um, the Delta of Egypt, you walk around and there is like a pit at the back end of it. And all the tour guides are like, this is the, this is where they filmed the movie. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And they're like, you want to go in it? And I was like, yeah. And so we like, we climbed down into it. I'm like standing there and I'm like, Harrison Ford was here. There's like snakes everywhere. Like, this is so cool. And then like, I looked it up afterwards and I was like, yeah, they didn't film here at all. Like they're just like lying to get all the tourists. Yeah, they filmed in Tunisia. Yeah. They do. Yeah, I but... was like, what? I was like, you lied That's to me. That's amazing. <laughs> it was a pit, and it wasn't real Tanis, so it's where <laughs> it was purporting to be. So, I mean, but the, the there. And stuff is right if you're talking about Exodus, like material, the timing. You know, you're going to put it in a twenty. 20- Second Dynasty city, supposedly, yeah, Shishak of the Bible or Shawshank, the first of of Egyptian um, lineage, is going to be the guy that takes it from from Jerusalem and then puts it in Tanis. So you know they did that kind of research. That's that's fine. It's not like the mummy where there's like five canopic jars. Is that right? (laughs) So you know, just some of the the imagery is a little off, but like the. The map room is kind of cool where you've got Tanis all laid out and the different temples and everything. It's cool that there's a medallion and light comes down. And then, it, I mean, that's, that's awesome. Seems great. So, yeah, the, I think the movie, the timeline the movie says is something like 980. The I, I don't know if they named the Pharaoh or, or if that, I assumed that that was all just, just. No, just, it's a, it's actually a legit theory that people, wow. that, well, because Sefjong goes up to the, up there and we stop hearing about the ark in the temple most people think it's all the babylonians when they come sack the first temple that they took it but there is in the passage that talks about shashak shashank coming up he takes stuff from the temple so okay okay maybe or the babylonians or the romans or the assyrians <laughs> someone was, took it was tanis ever a lost city no no, we, we always, I mean, everything that is ancient Egypt is kind of lost, right? And has sure. had to have been rediscovered in some way, shape or form. So in some ways, yes, but it, it, it fits that part's on point. And I'm so glad you're teaching Jerusalem right now, Jordan. So you know all this stuff. We just, so, we just went over it in midterm. Oh, one, one part that I hate is when, when Salah goes, Cairo, city of the living. And you look at it and you go, no, it's not. You're like in Morocco or something. And we can totally <laughs> tell. Because Cairo does not look like that. Cairo wouldn't have looked like that then. Cairo had boulevards and big apartment buildings when, when he would have been there. It would have been a completely different place. And so Cairo is primitivized, if if you like. Nothing against Morocco. But um, but it would have looked very, very different in the, in the late 30s for certain. 
And I had another question also, if this is, again, just sort of fishing around of like, if is there any sort of actuality and because like you you mentioned the, the the wall carvings in the temple and like like there's even famously like a little r2d2 in one of those if you look like right when they're lifting the ark out and we've talked about this a lot about movies having to do with set in ancient greece and rome where they just kind of throw it all together anything that is visually evocative of the cultural perception of whatever it is egypt greece and i assume that's basically just is what's going on in in this movie right you get sort of profile statues anubis statues yep. Yeah, yeah, they just collapse. Jordan and I work on a lot of consulting together on many projects, actually, and we can see how how it's done. You know, the the artists will pick up pattern books and different different things, do some Google image searches, and they're like, "Oh, I like this," and then they just use it, and then they show it to you. You're like, "No, that's wrong," and your whole story is wrong, and this is all wrong, and then they don't know how to go back and and deal with it. Some people know to work early enough with the consultants to to deal with it. Like Jordan has helped with. Um, like what kinds of consulting work have you have you done, Jordan, to get it right? I mean, I mean, I'm mainly helping with costumes. That's what my PhD research looks at. Um, but even like set design, you know, things like this. Yeah, getting even spoken word, how certain phrases would sound. But you know, just getting things. Ancient Egypt is thousands of years of history, and everyone kind of just makes it into this one entity. And just being like, okay, so you're setting it in the New Kingdom. Like, here's what would be there. There aren't pyramids in like Thebes, right? You know, like knowing your spatial geography of where things are in time and space. And okay, here's what like technologies they would have. And here's what they would be dressing like and the foods they'd be eating. Um, and maybe the names that were popular. That's why these movies are so much better. The Mummy and Raiders, because they're not set in ancient times. They're set in the thirties and forties and or twenties. And it's, it's just easier to do that. Right. Cause I would say like, I think we talked about this. We actually just happen chance our um, Egyptian pop culture episode is actually coming out Monday. And when I was yes. doing the edits for it, I just, the only Egypt movie that takes place in ancient Egypt that we both liked was um, Prince of Egypt, which is a cartoon. So they could yeah. just draw everything how right, they wanted right, it. Right. But like everything else is bad. Like no mm. one has done it right. Yeah. What's been the the worst, the most egregious? Oh. Um, Exodus, Gods and Kings is really ah. bad. And then Gods of Egypt is really bad too. Oh, yeah. Oh, Gods of Egypt is. It looks so bad. Yeah. But Exodus is trying to be legit and he's wearing like the the queen's headdress. You're like, what? You're, you, you put him in a dress. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that and wouldn't it be nice if more men put on dresses to gain power which they don't do but you know they put him in the moot vulture headdress christian bale i'm like what the hell is going on <laughs> trying to be serious and you get it that wrong um gods of egypt is just a farce and it's stupid so yeah, yeah and just like the casting of like white british men for it's just like not even trying to gods of egypt is a strong contender for worst movie ever made just on like many levels of just like you know <laughs> script acting like it's it's oof. it's almost like I, I you could almost use it as like a case study of like what not to do in a movie but oh the question i remember was being of just other sort of points of like historicity if we could call it that had to do my question was about the medallion um, or, or the headpiece of the staff of Ra, and like there's writing on it, or they say something. Is there anything going on there, or is that just? Yeah, the writing 
looks. What is it? Is it like heretic sort of writing? So I'm trying to look it up right now. Pull this thing up. We'll do a thing like anytime we're watching a movie and then they cut to like there's a bit of Latin or ancient Greek. I usually like we'll do a pause in a freeze frame and I'll like try to and like sometimes it's more right than not. Sometimes it's just gobbledygook. Like Linear B and uh, Atlantis. Yeah. That was yes. Fun. Most um. times it's gobbledygook and they just are throwing like random hieroglyphs together. So I'm looking at it from like the Indiana Jones wiki and it's it looks like it's trying to be the Horus Falcon, uh, Kara, or like the Vulture, you know, wings yeah. out. But it's like looks yeah. more like a duck, and it looks like it has <laughs> Greek on it. It's not Egyptian. It looks just like a duck, and then the letters—it's alphabetic. The letters, it looks like Phoenician. Oh, you know what it is? I see a shin, it's Hebrew. And, like, or something. I mean, oh, it's Hebrew. And so the guy they bring it to is meant to be an Egyptian Jewish man, and he's not reading Egyptian; he's reading Hebrew. Yeah. That's so cool, actually. Because, like, in the <laughs> movie, the back, in the movie, the back of the medallion has like the instructions for how high the staff should be to mm. be able to reveal the ark. So it has to be Hebrew or somehow connected to, like, why would Pharaoh, why would whoever brought it to Egypt, like, know that? <laughs> like, so to me, it's the context is like Jewish people brought it to Egypt to hide it away. And then left a trail for its rediscovery at some point. This is, yeah, kind of, and I guess where the, the movie probably gets a little hand wavy, but the movie kind of does also allude to, like, in addition to the, the Nazis or the Americans or whoever trying to come in and sort of take the Ark or something like that. But there's, there's like, this was a similar thing, even like the way pharaohs were, were doing this, or later, like the Romans or, or the Greeks or whoever, you know, like these sort of, there, there's layers of conquest and taking things moving them around things like stuff like that and that's already happening in this you know the arc is like one of these pieces that gets moved around that was a very muddled thought that i'm kind of i mean i have a real problem with this why is it in hebrew why are the hebrew why are they trying to hide it for the egyptians you know what if the egyptians are the ones that stole it and then they put it in the map or they put it in the pit the well of souls and then they hide it and make the map room why why would they create the piece that helps them find it I don't, it doesn't so, make sense. So I have two tidbits. So based off the wiki, it is written in Paleo-Hebrew and it can be read. So we'd have to like ask Bill from UCLA, Bill Schneiderwin, who does all the language stuff. So apparently it says like, and one Amma, the biblical unit above and uh, honor Yahweh and the tabernacle or something like that. So it is written in the language. The other thing about how this maybe could fit within the biblical literature is that when the Babylonians came and sacked a lot of people like went to Egypt to get away from them because you know they forced them into exile so it's like maybe the priesthood could have taken the ark with them escaped out the back door and went and hid it somewhere in Egypt under the Egypt the Egyptians not knowing but I don't know how they would have gotten to Tanis and like hid it within this <laughs> royal <laughs> enclosure a lot of the like logic of these kinds of like just set pieces right where like we want a set piece where he um walks through this this temple and there's pressure plates that shoot out darts and and there's a boulder that rolls or something like that which is like why would you ever build a place like this right like why would you build a map room like it makes no sense that you would do it this way it only makes sense if you built it with the idea that some indiana jones is going to come along in 2000 or whatever years you know, i think about this like a lot of times like it's like the logic of like 
in video games or Dungeons and Dragons where like you're going through the dungeon and it's like, why would there just be a bunch of rooms with traps and like an ogre walking around? Like, what? <laughs> or even like they make a joke about this in the lost city, which I have yet to edit our episode on where they're like, why would this room be filled with snakes? Like, do they live here? Who put them here? Um, <laughs> yeah. I will say the, the part I like about that scene that does actually scream archeology span at me is like delicately walking up a feature or around a wall or something. I'm like, yeah, that is exactly what it looks like when you're trying to navigate between trenches and trying to get to the spot you need to be. So like- I thought you were gonna say the part where he knocks over the statue through the wall. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> you never, you've never done that? You never just- um... <laughs> I remember when I was working in a museum that they were like, cause you're always afraid, you know, of dropping something. And yeah. they were saying like, you haven't like, at some point in everyone's museum, work life like you will drop something and break it yeah. like everyone has like that one story of like dropping and breaking something and hopefully it's just not i've never done that it that i've never done it journey <laughs> you would drop you would, you would drop and break a coffin so that'd be i bad. was there when neil husband number one let him not be named again was um he almost dropped a coffin he dropped a camera on a coffin oh almost God. almost almost he didn't and i remember the curator was there and looked at him and looked at me and it was just oh my God. I uh, have like sort of two stories. I think I've told them on the show, but what one was I we were in I was in Italy and we were looking. It was I forget the name of the town, and it was like a small little like local museum, and they had a sarcophagus, like a land antique sarcophagus, and you could and there was like the top was cracked such that you could actually look down and you could see there were still bones in there, and we were up on like you're, there's like you can see it at the ground floor, you can like see the side, and then you can go to like a sort of balcony area and like look down on on top and while we're all like looking over somebody like had their like their their notebook basically like a page like some pages like like fell out of or they like dropped their notebook and all these pages went everywhere and we all like collectively held our breath as we watched this one piece of paper like (laughs) float down towards the sarcophagus and we were like is it gonna go in the sarcophagus (laughs) like and it just barely missed but there was like a you know time stood still for like probably about three seconds as we watched this piece of paper like almost go inside a sarcophagus. I was in a hot air balloon that almost hit an obelisk at Karnak. What? <laughs> yes, that happened. Cleared it oh my feet. God. I have a lot of follow-up questions about this. This. Um, <laughs> what, what was going on in a hot air balloon? <laughs> I was there for a documentary and they, they had a film crew in there and it was, you know, and I Too was heavy. talking while we're looking at stuff and whatever and they almost hit the obelisk oh my god they were and they were trying to get as low to the temple as they could so this was this was bad bad. wow i just have the story of the student who put a pickaxe through a human skull twice for a good measure luckily kind of just scooped the skull cap out so like wasn't the worst but it wasn't great pull the buster bluth just kind (laughs) of hammer right through the skull Yep. It makes me so uncomfortable every time you tell that story, Christy. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, so I, I don't know where we're at exactly, but I had seen an Indiana Jones movie before this one, and it was Crystal Skull, which was yeah. Ancient oh, Aliens. Yeah. My dad's obsessed with Ancient Aliens, which is very hard oh, to deal with sometimes. Oh, we're, so we're getting smart. David Anderson on next week yeah. to talk about that oh, movie. Awesome. Oh, great. But it, it brings me to the ending because, like, Indy is sulking because they're being told, it's like, well, you can't put it in the museum. It's like, we have men looking at it. And it gets <laughs> boxed up to a crate and put in a giant warehouse 
And I like turned to Andy, who's watching with me, is like, is that like Area 51? Or like, is mm-hmm. is this basically voicing a conspiracy that the US government is collecting powerful antiquities for future use? What is happening there? One of the other fantasies of this movie is, and is in addition, we talked about sort of the, the Jewish revenge fantasy, is that it's a sort of simplistic moral tale where the American forces are sort of unequivocally and uncomplicatedly. I mean, there's a little bit of complication at the end where Harrison Ford is like, you know, the, like the top men, but, and it's better than, I guess, the Nazis. But yeah, like the role of like the government in all of this. I think it's a very anti-authoritarian It's very anti-authoritarian. The Nazis don't come off well. The United States government and the CIA don't come off well. Um, anybody who's in any sort of organization, this is a movie that is about how noble and brave you are when you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you do things independently and alone and you you take your own lead and you don't listen to anybody else. That's He is the anti-hero and of course he ends up alone and sad because of it. But yes, this is the price he must pay. And we've talked about like sort of, yeah, we talked earlier about this, this, the myth, you know, of like being proven right, right? Because that's really the appeal of this fantasy, right? Is that Jones is proven right. Or like, you know, that you could go out, everybody disbelieves your theory, but you find the thing, you, you know, uncover the lost treasure, you find the Ark, the Grail, the whatever, you know, the lost city of Zed, um, you know, and prove all the haters wrong. And like, that's really also like the appeal of this kind of fantasy, right? Is like that Indiana Jones is like, yeah, he's a he's like a libertarian hero. It also recalls to me the mess of museum basements and how, in a lot of cases, there are hidden gems down there that everyone's forgotten about, right? Because it's been maybe a hundred yeah. years since they were put down there, and then at some point, someone goes, you know, rooting around and find something great and amazing that has been lost since that time. Yeah, like at Museo Egizio in Turin, they found, right, Jordan, they found the leg from Nefertari's uh, tomb. Yeah, Nefertari. And they're like, this is Nefertari's, like, calf and and foot. Holy cow. Yeah, they have, like, her left leg or something, like, from the knee down. That's so wild. I had a revelation when I first went to Greece and they, they took us down into the basement of the, uh, in the Agora, there's the Stoa and they have a basement there where they keep most of the finds. And there's just racks and racks and racks and racks and racks of vases and like pots and like, and like to the point where it's like, there's just so many. And at a certain point, like, like it's just another black figure wear vase. Like it's not really anything, you know, there's just like, we just need to put it somewhere, but there's so much of that stuff. Out there. You know, Egypt, this, the government of Egypt is only just correcting a lot of this now. Since the revolution in 52, much of what has been discovered and then cannot leave Egypt stays in storage magazines on site. And storage mm-hmm. magazines at some sites just they keep getting built bigger and they're huge. And at places like Saqqara or Tanis or um, Karnak Temple, massive storage magazines. And only recently with the building of the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization and now the GEM, the Grand Egyptian Museum, are they opening up these storage magazines and putting things that have long been crated up and invisible to our eyes out into um, public sight. So, you know, these, these things, again, I'm going to say that they're they're bringing up actualities. It may be over the top in some ways, but they're bringing up actualities from our academic museum worlds. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that makes me wonder with the the fact that these government institutions, the CIA, the Nazi army and everything like that, as their interference in this being seen as bad, is that being tied to like certain laws 
like I know this is before NAGPRA comes out, but like certain laws that are limiting antiquities trade and is like a pushback against that. Well, I was just I was just having this thought experiment in my head where if like, what if this happened? Like, okay, what if the Ark did go to the US and is like sitting in a bunker somewhere and like someone finds it? Like, is Egypt going to call for its repatriation? Or like, mm. is Israel going to call for its repatriation? Because it was originally Israel's like... House is going to go down and like that messy, messy, messy fight. Or like U.S. would be like, well, it came here before, you know, the, the 1970s. So it's kosher and we can keep it like yeah. who gets this yeah. arc now. And that would just be like, like, you know, the Elgin Marbles type of time, yeah. like a billion <laughs> or Nefertiti, the best of Nefertiti. Yeah. Is it like, is it better to just keep it hidden away? So it's like we're like not bringing us all into this huge mess. Which but I isn't don't. that cool, the way they focus on how we fetishize these objects? Now, this particular object can kill, right? If you look <laughs> right. at it. But, but <laughs> the Rosetta Stone is in the Nefer- Nefertiti bust in Berlin. I mean, these things are so fetishized. The amount of yes. people that... And I just had a bar fight with two colleagues who will go unnamed at the Egyptology conference that we just had in Irvine, California. And um, and I'm like, yeah, of course they should send the Rosetta Stone and Nefertiti bus back. And they're like, no way, that's wrong. And I'm like, why is it wrong? Wow. And, and so we're, you know, not coming to blows, but it was, you know, we, we hold dear to these things and we claim them and we attach our own morality and um, objects have great power over us. And I, I like that. I like this materialist, this new materialist, lens through which we are we are looking in this movie of 1981 Mm -hmm. interesting well and ironically because i remember it's been a while since i've seen national treasure but like the smithsonian (laughs) storage like that was my next like is it area 51 and my partner's like it wasn't set up yet i'm like okay smithsonian warehouse like underground warehouse like, like fort knox Something yeah. well, or something. And the irony is, is that I think the Smithsonian officially just announced that they're like revamping their repatriation mm-hmm. system too. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe they do. Maybe they have the Ark okay. and Spielberg knew something. <laughs> also, there is also a kind of a, another just reality to it in that World War II being a huge catalyst for a lot of art and antiquities getting confiscated, stolen, traded. You know, there's all sorts of stories of, of different sort of art pieces that were, you know, and like the the paper trail that kind of goes missing. And World War II is being like a huge catalyst for, and we talked about the Roman bust a second ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and some things that are like still missing, right? Like that are probably in somebody's basement, locked collection. away, yeah. private collection, which is like, what is, what is the difference between some rich dude's private collection and a warehouse a bunker in the Smithsonian. It's like, it's amounts to the same thing. You have to remember, why is the Mona Lisa in the Louvre? Who mm-hmm. took it and when? And what is what does all of that mean? It should be given back to Italy. But mm-hmm. but when and how and to whom? And um, yeah. But, it you know, it's in France now. Yeah. And, and when you go and see it and you see like 500 people <laughs> crowded around this little painting that's just tiny, you're like, oh, my God. Talk about fetishization. It's Yeah. It's- yeah. Absolutely. Well, and like, you know, I talk to my students a lot, like being very frustrated about the British Museum, not even for the big items that is like that should go back. But like, you know, I I have a stamped lamp, a a molded lamp at Gonjavecchio with a particular sex scene. And I go to the British Museum and I see that same one. I'm like, maybe this is where it was manufactured. Where did it come from? And the answer the British Museum is like, maybe Naples. And I'm like, (laughs) damn it. And I think that's 
not just the I'm so interested in how you know that golden idol at the very beginning of the movie literally no context about it like why is it being sought out what is its value what is its meaning mm -hmm. and that could be understand in the temple space but it is removed and then stolen and we never see it again museum or otherwise yeah mm -hmm. yep. and that yeah. idol has complete power over the people they all bow down mm -hmm. and are super yeah afraid. yeah exactly. On this, the line of fetishization and even going hand in sort of the period piece of the fetishization of like precious metals, jewelry, we care so much about the stuff if it's made of emeralds or whatever, which is like the twist that they pull in Last Crusade where it's like the Holy Grail is actually just a wooden cup or something like that. Like, you know, that's the... That's, which that's, I love. Boiler. <laughs> I do like that. Sorry. I've seen that. I've seen that scene, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> or I mean, with the Da Vinci Code where it's actually a woman. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the the allure of because also they even just so much early archaeology was just trying to find the more impressive gold thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, to to the exclusion of yeah, to the exclusion of other probably very informative works made out of you know terracotta or whatever. Or I think about human remains as well. It's like sort of the you know <laughs> I mean, sorry eli, bring it up in every single well, well no i i texted eli when i was watching last crusade because it's I the know. part where he rips it he, he reaches into a little like what you would call it like it's a, like a, a cyst tomb yeah something. and he, he just grabs the skeleton rips the skeleton out like presumably from the middle ages and turns the skeleton's femur into a torch and i was like eli would would lose her gourd watching like, this really, no and i i was like i vividly remember that and i <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just like, why? Why? Why would you do this? I mean, yeah. how, many, how many stories do we have, Kara, of, you know, mummies just being used as like firewood because they had so mm -hmm. many of them? Or do like, used to like eat doctor... mummies or something crazy like that? Oh, yeah. Mummia. Mummia. Yeah. Mummia was a pharmaceutical and it was ground up mummy and you, you would buy powdered mummia and take it as a cure-all. Mummia and mummy brown was also used to make pigment. Um, pretty late. Oh and yeah, mummies yeah. were used for firewood and crappy coffins were used for firewood. There's so much of this stuff coming out of your ears that, that it was used in the ways that were most practical at the mm -hmm. time. Or even with um, Rose's stuff where she only has the skulls because back then they only kept the skulls for like exactly. creepy eugenics, eugenics type stuff. Yeah. Um, but they just got rid of all the bodies. So you can't tell the cause of death or other things that like other things mm -hmm. about the bodies. Cause all you have is like the skulls. Yes. Mm -mm -mm. But what even like Harvard, Howard Carter, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't finding enough gold or stuff, even though he found a lot of, you know, archaeological knowledge. But it was Lord Carnarvon was like, if you don't find me something like good, like I'm going to cut off my funding. So. Um, I've, I've heard uh, stories of, of, of digs that will go unmentioned, um, but they're in Crete, but where they, you know, they expected a sort of donor or a wealthy individual who was visiting and wanted to do some digging with their child or whatever. So they're like, we're pretty sure there's probably something good in this room over here. So like nobody touch it for a few weeks. And so when they come, we'll let them dig over there and they have a very high chance of finding something. And then that means I'm making the money symbol with my fingers right now. <laughs> At least they didn't like bury something like on purpose. Oh, At least they oh, just were like yeah, guessing something yeah. was there. This happens all the time in our world. You can't imagine all these live TV specials that used to be the thing, oh, yeah. particularly in the aughts. And you know they would they would find things on live television. Oh yeah. Well, I know they've got one with William Shatner that like some people were pushing back against in our our field, thankfully, and just being like, listen, because I, I think it was called Unexplained Mysteries. I'm like, they're not unexplained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get some archaeologists yeah, to explain it. 
yeah if they're unexplained it's because we have incomplete information that's yeah, okay. exactly yeah all those nat geo and nat, uh, history channel they're so bad and i feel sad because when i was growing up there was good ones on like mm-hmm. science channel Kara stuff when i was in i won't disclose my age um <laughs> but when i was growing up like watching Kara stuff watching other really cool like actually historically accurate and well-researched documentaries that just don't exist nowadays so i feel bad for they're coming back they're coming back because people are starting to do more um low budget documentaries um old school talking head style things um like dan snow's history hit those yeah, those are good like so well so i feel like back. it's pivoted to podcasts i was want to get like mm-hmm. actually interesting history stuff it's all podcasts now i was gonna yeah. I, I was gonna say i was gonna ask like that and also youtube too or like you know yes. someone could, could do a youtube channel that fills that niche which is why a place like the history channel is scrambling you know or they they went down the ancient aliens route you know hard or something like that real hard <laughs> i i remember because because i've done ground penetrating radar and i just remember randomly turning it because i was in a hotel and it's like i don't have cable anymore so let's see what turns on it's like oh they're using ground penetrating radar and they're like we found oh it's like we're looking for human remains and here they are and it's like here's this bone we're gonna test the dna and i I, they pick up the bone and I'm like, that's not even human. And they're like, we test. And like later, the narrator is like, we tested the DNA. It didn't match. I'm like, was it even human? It was a sheep. <laughs> I was going to say that one show about a money pit, there they just keep digging further down. And I'm like, there's no treasure. There's no Blackbeard's treasure. Like, you're just digging a giant hole into the earth and it keeps flooding. Like, you're just like, <laughs> like wasting money just digging this giant ass hole in like Nova Scotia or something. A literal and money they just, pit. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh, <sighs> exhausting. So we're hitting where we, we just hit the, the hour 10 mark. And so um, we can try to think about sort of wrapping things up. But before that, as, I just want to ask is there, are there any particular scenes or characters or moments that we haven't hit on yet that people really wanted to, to make sure saw the light of day? I, I will say there was a fight scene in the market before Marion is put into the basket. And like Indy's doing like real choreography and she's just picking up a metal pan and like slowly funking mm-hmm. <laughs> guys with it. I, I thought you were going to talk about where he just shoots the, the sword guy. I mean, that's great too. <laughs> and I know that's com- that is a reference to um, Star Wars in particular because... It's like the the question of who shot first and like. Well, actually, do you know the full story behind this? Because he was just hung over and he didn't want to do the fight. Oh. Thing. Well, I heard he had like he had like uh, food poisoning yeah. or something or dysentery. Oh, that's <laughs> even worse. Yeah, and because he, he in interviews, they're they're little Spielberg and Harrison Ford are a little. They go back and forth, and they it's slightly different, but because of like who who came up with the idea. But basically, the the gist is. He had so Spielberg when they were filming in Tunisia, Spielberg just brought all of his own food in like cans or something like that. Harrison Ford describes it like he just brought like cans of spaghettios or whatever. Um, so he didn't get sick, but most of the cast and crew got sick while they were filming there. That's archaeologically like that's accurate. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine would dug in Morocco for for a thing, and and that was her her takeaway was. Yep. Um, but the so Harrison Ford had like horrible, you know, like. IBS or something and who was basically like he was like I can only be on set for like maybe an hour before I got a like bathroom emergency so he goes to Spielberg and he's just like 
can we just shoot this guy? Um, <laughs> and Spielberg, and then in Sp- when Spielberg tests it, he kind of makes it seem like it was his own idea, but he was like, yeah, that actually sounds fun. And so apparently though, it's like that poor guy like rehearsed a whole big sword fight. But then when they initially sh- on the first take, he did like a, like a 30 second death scene where he like goes down on one knee and screams and <laughs> rides and flips over. And like, they had to like talk him down. They're like, no, no, just like fall over. Um, uh, but yeah. What's hilarious about that is that in my Orientalism class in undergrad, that's the scene he showed as peak mm. Orientalism was yeah. all the, you know, primitive natives with their knives. And he has, you know, he takes out 10 of them versus this one white guy with a gun. Right. And then so it comes across super Orientalist, even though it wasn't yeah. ever meant to be depicted mm-hmm. that way. But it's a colonialist statement too, right? You just come in with your guns and you're you're able to get away with a whole lot more. Absolutely. Any other particular sort of scenes? uh, I have one sign-off question before. um... I mean, I think we kind of touched upon like the arc, like melting everyone. That was like fun and cathartic. (laughs) So good. Mm I have always loved the the airplane fight scene where Mary oh, yeah. is trapped in the in the cockpit yeah. and, and Dana Jones is trying to fight the huge <laughs> German and Pat Roach, he's he's out, he's actually in like he plays like three roles in every Indiana Jones movie. He's also That's in incredible. the bar fight. He's in the bar fight scene. He's the big guy in the bar fight scene. Um he's just like a staple of and then so they get Pat Roach. And apparently that scene I just learned was like mostly improvised where they just went out there for like three, four days and just kind of like worked out different ideas. And like him getting chopped up by the propeller was like not in the original draft. It like came to them on the fly. I love it. And Harrison Ford apparently really wanted to bite somebody in a fight and throw sand in their face. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Marion's pretty badass, right? Always. Yeah. Using her sexuality to to get what she can, and then hitting people when you know, that works better. So I, I, you know, and drinking. Um, mm-hmm. like, like, I love that it, scene actually. But not getting drunk because she would never. You don't do that. It's mm-hmm. not cool. We don't slur. We don't stumble. We can just drink. Because that even in she, her character is almost in you know in the movies that this movie is kind of evoking like the 30s and 40s serials. That character would be a straight up damsel in distress, right? She'd be yeah, in mm-hmm. a sort of red silk dress in the jungle or whatever like getting yes. rescued yeah jordan's making faces um <laughs> and so yeah to make her i think they, it was maybe an inspired decision to make her this like sort of hard drinking fist fighting smashing over your bottle's head scrappy. And, and yeah mm-hmm. she's scrappy she's scrappy yeah. yeah yeah i will say i had one major hang-up involving marion but it wasn't about marion necessarily herself where like Indy thinks she's dead, and I can't remember his name, but he's like, oh, get over it. It'll be fine. And then, like, <laughs> later when she's back and he's, like, he's found the pirate ship for them to escape on. He's like, they are, like, family. You take care of them or I'll hear about it. And then she, like, gives him a gratuitous kiss. And I'm like, dude, this this guy literally gave zero f- about you. <laughs> 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 he, he does not deserve that kiss. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so my last question for everybody is, so for Indiana Jones, his like his big automatic nope is snakes. What's yours? If you're digging, what's the thing you absolutely are like, you see it when you're in your trench and you're like, this, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not an archeologist. I'm an art historian and social historian, but really it's pottery. I have no understanding of it. I don't know how, why people draw it or saw it in half. I don't know how they typologize it. It all looks exactly the same unless there's anything <laughs> on it and then maybe and this means we just all have our skill sets and this is not mine. i late 
in my grad school career, I had realized I might have missed my calling as actually maybe a ceramicist because like I, they put me in a basement in the Agra and I just like joining, making joins for me was like, I was in heaven. Like like it was just like, I'm a big Lego guy. There's a Lego Millennium Falcon in the closet, you know, on the other side of this camera. And just like, and so pottery (laughs) is like making those joins. And I like held it up to the chart. I'm like, 460. And I remember the professor, she was like, yeah, you're pretty good at this. I'm like, man, maybe I should have done this instead of what I ended up doing, which was weirder. <laughs> but My husband's a potter. That's number two. Mm-hmm. Jordan? Um, well, I'll speak from experience. So the scariest things from being that happened when being on a dig were when I was digging in the Delta in, in northern Egypt, there was these tiny, tiny, tiny little scorpions. I guess I think they said they were like baby scorpions, which are more poisonous than adult scorpions, apparently. And they were like translucent, so you could barely see them. Um, unlike a snake or something that's kind of big, you could maybe see it coming. Though I do not, don't like things in masses. So the like massive snakes would definitely also much, very much um, bother me. But yeah, I would say these, these little tiny scorpions, and then you'd see them, and then all the boys around would come and hack it to pieces so it was okay because um, all the teenage boys just liked hacking all the scorpions to pieces with the hose so you would just be like scorpion and then it was like ah like the mass came and destroyed it so they were protecting you i bet yeah were they doing it to impress you maybe mm-hmm. but also claustrophobia oh small spaces mm-hmm. yeah we, I remember we would get an, a scorpion in Sicily, mm-hmm. Christy, every now and then. But I think they're like, they're not the kind that I would be like super scared of. And they were kind of slow moving and they're just like, okay, just get out of my way. Just, yeah. Just, just go away. In Romania, there are these toads that like crawl into the trench at night and they like burrow into the ground. And so when you're like traveling, you'll just suddenly hit a toad and it like jumps out. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, I like frogs, like it's fine, but I usually have to like rescue like five of them and like Mm -hmm. carrying five slimy, dirty toads like out to the field. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. (laughs) But I think my actual nope would be a cockroach. Colin knows of my my feelings about cockroaches. Not that I have ever found one. in a trench but if it's in a room mm-hmm. i'm leaving that room yeah <laughs> when eli and i lived in austin together there was a lot of cockroach incidents i grew up in texas it's just the way it is the yeah. way you just deal with the cockroaches you guys come on mm-hmm. <laughs> no no um i guess i've got like two weird scenarios my very first dig was actually in washington state and it was a mammoth dig and it was very interesting because like we were taking out the bulks. We were like the very last season to be working on it. And like everyone knew that there is a layer of, it was almost like cement. And what it was was solidified cicada burrows that you literally just had to strong arm your way through. But the problem was, is like right below that layer is where the mammoth bones were. And so like you literally are just, full force and then all of a sudden bone would explode you're like no (laughs) my mammoth how did this happen and uh, and then my experience at ganja vecchio because the site that we dig at it looks like a a disaster some kind of natural disaster occurred to preserve the site and so we have occasionally found human remains where we are not expecting human remains and the last season i was there 
like we we have a kitchen midden, so like animal bones everywhere. And then all of a sudden, a student comes and pulls me. He's like, "Um, is this animal?" And I'm like, "It's not. Where did you get this?" And it ended up being the worst game of like there are human bones mixed with animal bones, just based on how whatever mudslide. like a landslide, mudslide, <laughs> yeah. like took out this structure in the, in the trash pit. Yeah. It is, it is like the worst game of is it animal or is it human? And I hated it so much because I'm I don't even look at human bones that much, just enough to be the only one on site with a bunch of undergrads to recognize the difference. Maybe. So, I, have a, I have now that I have time to think about it. I have a better one. Dig toilets. Yeah. Ooh, I agree. With, I agree with you a thousand percent. Oh, like, I'd rather I just go outside. I didn't want to say it. I'm glad you. Like, I just want to just go out into, in nature. Yeah. Like, I don't want any type of like primitive toilet. Uh-uh. No. no. Yeah. No. Yeah. Sounds like a great way to get like Hannah virus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no good. <laughs> All right. That's a, that sounds like a great note to end on. Um, <laughs> Poop. Poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Jordan, Kara, thank you so much for coming on the show. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. We had a blast having you on. Thank you. If listeners, people want to hear more, uh, read more from you, where can they? Where can they do that? So, I think this is me. Um, so, you can listen to our podcast, After Lies with Kara Cooney, on all good podcasting services. So, whichever one you like best. Um, we tend to drop every. Monday every two weeks, um, but there is a good backlog, so you can catch up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow us on. You can sign up for our newsletter at Kara's website, which is oh, KaraCooneyEgyptologist.com, I think. Yes, I think. that's right. Um, and we also have that. We just started a new Substack, so if you do after lives after party, um, we have a new Substack where we continue the conversations that we started on the podcast, do some weekly roundups of our favorite nude stories and things like that. So. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm J.A. Gelsinski. And you can follow Kara on Twitter as well. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm on other socials, but not as active because, you know, some of them have become so evil I can't handle it. And if you want to read some of my more um, political screeds, then you can pick up some of my trade books. Um, the last one is called The Good Kings, and it's all about how we positivize authoritarianism as Egyptologists, and should we do that? And what can we learn about patriarchal rule from ancient Egypt and kings like Khufu or Ramses II? Um, why build a pyramid? Why build colossal statues? And and what? how are we very similar to these guys? So that was the last book. And uh, it seems to have pissed a whole lot of people off. So that's exciting. Hey, hey that seems, yeah. like, it seems like you're doing enemies. it right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The, what is it you're doing it wrong if you don't have enemies? So, so that's mm-hmm. cool. And um, yeah, we're putting, you know, Twitter is where I hang out the most. Um, that might now be not fun too. So, um, <laughs> Long sigh. Yeah. <laughs> but, but really to find out what, what's going on in our heads, you know, Jordan and I, once we start talking, we just, um, we, we have a really fun time just um, speaking to each other very quickly and about all manner of subjects. And that's where you need to go. And um and listen to us gab it's very fun excellent we have new things in the in the works too so if you are a listener stay tuned for things awesome all right well again yeah thank you thank you both uh for for coming on and we'll hopefully yeah if any you ever want to come back if there's anything you ever want to talk about movies or 
Reese Moon and Rome. Mm-hmm. We can do Moon Knight. Moon we just both haven't watched it completely. Okay. So I'm maybe I'm once the first now. maybe once the first season's over. My embarrassing story was was like with their I don't, well actually I don't want to spoil it whether they find a certain. <laughs> oh yeah, don't don't spoil the tomb. Don't spoil the tomb. Okay. Oh, the tomb. It's so good. I had a real overthinking classicist okay. moment um, <laughs> of who I thought was going to be in that tomb. <laughs> Yeah. But anyways, so 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 yeah. Thank you both again uh, for coming on the show. We'll we'll uh, we'll see you around. So bye. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 bye.